We have Mike Brown here this morning to preach for us. I met Mike seven years ago through Radius International when we moved here to work for Radius. And Mike is one of the founders of Radius International. Radius is a school for people who want to do church planting among unreached people groups in closed countries. And we have two campuses down here in Tijuana, and we have one campus over in Taiwan. So before Radius, Mike went to Mexico and he started a ministry there called El Puente. And then in 2007, Mike returned to um, Los Angeles and did a church plant there, Soma Burbank. And then he's been serving as an adjunct professor at Eternity Bible College and at Radius International. Mike is also one of the most sought after uh, instructors for the perspectives class that I was talking about in the video, and he will be one of our instructors on our class that's coming up this spring. He's married, and his wife Amy is also a very gifted uh, Bible teacher, counselor, discipler, and they have four children together. So Mike, if you would come on up. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for Shelton this morning as he's at this conference, and we pray that uh, your spirit would uh, minister him. We pray that he would uh, be edified, and we pray that he would find uh, some things that uh, we could use here to grow deeper in you, uh, to become more like you. And Lord, we pray for Mike this morning as he brings us the word. We ask that your spirit would be on him, lead and direct him, and uh, Lord, I pray that we would receive it and, uh, and follow it. Your name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me out. I am from Los Angeles, so we all know that you are our better looking neighbor. And any chance we get to come down here, we're looking for an opportunity. So I brought my family down with me this time. My wife uh, was born and raised in Chula Vista. And so uh, we wanted to introduce the kids to Casa de Pico. So we brought them there. And then she told them all about the family house restaurant that had the cigarette machines where we used to go for our parents and get the cigarettes out, and somehow our kids did not understand that reference at all, but uh, still went back there this morning, so always love a chance to be down here. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> I was asked to do two things this morning. One is to set up the journey through God's story. Uh, talking about God's missionary purposes from Genesis to Revelation. And the second thing is I was asked to do that in 30 minutes. So one of those two things is going to happen. And if we can hit somewhere in the middle there, that would be perfect. Uh, but just setting up, because as a church, you are going to be journeying through God's story, learning more about who he is, what he's doing, how he's revealed himself, and learning what he's up to. And you're going to be walking through scripture to see God's missionary heart in every page of the Bible. So the way that I want to approach that this morning is by giving you three main ideas that form the backbone of every passage of scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. These three big ideas inform our understanding of God's story, and it's this. The story, the Bible, is about God's promise to accomplish his purposes through his people. 
So it's about God's promise, the fact that he has asked people to do something he has chosen to bless and empower them to do. He has promised his people, he has invited us into this relationship with him where we might know him and be known by him in order to participate with what he's doing in his ultimate purpose for all of humanity, where all of the Bible is rapidly moving towards. So God's promises towards his people to accomplish his purpose. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Literally, we're going to start in Genesis. We're not going to be going through the whole Bible that way. But I want to start out and show you the very first time God promises something in Scripture to give you an idea of how this looks. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God created man in his own image. In his image and likeness, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then this is what he says. And God blessed them, which is another way of saying promise. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first promise is that God blesses Adam and Eve to exercise stewardship over creation and to be fruitful and multiply. The second promise comes immediately after we're introduced to the serpent, who's the antagonist of the story, and sin is introduced into the world. And no sooner had sin ruined God's perfect creation than he goes on the counterattack to do something about it. And as he is cursing Adam and his work, cursing Eve and childbirth, cursing the serpent, he says this in verse 15. I will put war, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So now he promises that there is going to arise a serpent crusher who is going to go to war with the serpent that introduced sin into the world. And then we start walking through the Bible in Genesis 9, after the flood, God promises to never destroy the earth again. In Genesis chapter 15, he makes a covenant with Abram. We call the Abrahamic covenant where he promises him that he will have children and land and be fruitful and bless all of those nations on and on and on. Here's the point. God's purposes are seen in God's promises. He is not making random promises to bless people for their individual enjoyment. Every one of God's promises clues us in onto what is important to God, what it is he's actually after. So when he blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, we can infer that God does want them to exercise dominion over this creation, something that would lead to its flourishing. When God promises one will come to crush the serpent, he is serious about sin and will do something about it. All of these things, God's purposes are seen in his promises. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12, which is a pretty huge promise. And God appears to a man named Abram who is advanced in years. 
He is barren and has not been able to have any children, neither has his wife Sarai. And God chooses to use them to flex. This is another huge theme throughout Scripture. God typically chooses those who could not take credit for it when he acts. God typically chooses who we call the underdog. The Bible just calls normal people. And even when you look at what we consider the A-list of God's team, we're talking about adulterers, murderers, idolaters. That's the A-team. Those are the good guys, by the way. We haven't even gotten to the bad guys. So God chooses to flex through people that can't take credit for it. And he makes this incredible promise to Abram in Genesis 12, chapter 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to leave your country, I want you to leave your home, and I want you to leave your family. Great. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. And because of that obedience, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want you to note the order of God's promise to Abram in Genesis 12. I will so that. I will do this so that you can do this. There's a give and take and a reciprocity here. God has chosen to bless his people in order that they might glorify him through that blessing. And through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Which means, if there is anything in our lives that could rightly be called a blessing from God, the very next question has to be, why has God chosen to bless me with this? For what purpose? I will so that. What's the so that for you? Take stock of everything in your life that we kind of in an offhand glib way make comments about being blessings from God and think if that is genuinely a God-given blessing, and God blesses his people in order to bless others, how have I stewarded that blessing in order for the sake of other people to flourish? That is just stewardship of his treasure that is hidden in the jars of clay of our lives. Now, God does not ask us to do something that he also hasn't promised help for, but all throughout Scripture... God's promises are more about his global fulfillment than individual enjoyment, which is very jarring to an individualistic, me-centered understanding not only of God, but of ourselves. God's promises are always tied to his global purposes, what he's doing for all of humanity throughout all time, throughout the entire planet, not just our own individual enjoyment, which means... We have to fight against coming to Scripture with a me-first mentality, which is what many of us typically do. We walk into service, we open our Bibles, and we say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? 
And so we love those promises of God. We love those psalms. We love all these passages that seem to speak about God saying something to me. But as important as that is, it's always for a larger reason. And the fact that the God of the universe who is operating throughout eternity and time and space would choose to encourage me with a message through his word should naturally lead to a praise and a glorifying God that this eternal God still condescends to speak to me in all of my storms and issues and troubles. So we have to read scripture rightly with a view of who God is and what he's doing, not just be coming to it coming to it, asking, what is God doing in me? What is God saying to me? The ultimate promise of Genesis 12 is that there is going to be a Messiah who will remove all sin, that he is going to reverse the work of evil, and he's going to restore all things back to the way that they were designed to be. And all of God's blessings are related to that, that coming Messiah that is going to accomplish God's purposes All of these blessings, all of these promises are towards that end. The second thing is the people that he makes this promise to. And there's a reason that we're first introduced to God in Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God. It establishes very quick who the main character of this book is going to be. And then immediately after that, we're introduced to Adam and Eve, and then we're introduced to Cain and Abel, and then we're introduced to Lamech and his sons, and then we're introduced to Noah, on and on. And very quickly, we see the Old Testament is establishing who are God's people, who are not God's people, and the God who wants all of them to come and know him. But the problem is, whenever we speak of the Great Commission or conversion or salvation, Sometimes we do it in a very statistical way instead of a relational way. We start counting numbers. We start thinking of people as simply nameless beings who are saying yes to Jesus and focusing on conversion. But it makes sense that if God exists in and by and for relationship, that he would desire his creation to be part of that relationship and to know him. So God has first chosen to reveal himself in this Trinitarian way as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are eternally existent and enjoying each other's company. There is a relationship at the core of the Godhead where they are mutually satisfied by and in each other, And so it makes sense that God would say, this is so good. They need this too. I want them to know me so that they might find their meaning and their purpose in me. That they might have a place to bring their hurts and their failures as well as their pride and their successes and see it in level at the foot of my cross. It makes sense that we would exist for that relationship and understand that underneath any so-called commission, there is God's heart and desire for humanity to be in a relationship with him 
where he no longer calls us servants, but he calls us friends. And if our commission has any power, it's this. No matter what you have done to misuse God's plan for your life, he's not done with you. No matter how far you have intentionally run from him the opposite direction, he's not done pursuing you. Second Timothy says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. No matter where you have gone or what you have done or how hard our hearts have become, he's not through pursuing. He's not through inviting. And he's not through delighting and wanting you so badly to bring all of that junk to him to find fulfillment and hope and meaning and purpose that he just keeps going after and going after. Any commission we've been given that is not fueled relationally is a commission with no power. We're not just inviting people to become tools that God can use to build his kingdom. We're inviting them to become adopted sons and daughters by a father who has already approved of them and accepted them and said they are enough and brought them to him. So where do we see God's people and that blessing intersect in Scripture? Well, in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve that God blesses and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 12, you have Abram being invited into a relationship where God is going to bless him for the sake of the pagan nations. Even Moses, who goes up on Mount Sinai to encounter God, when he does so, God gives him the law not to make him smarter than the surrounding nations, but according to Deuteronomy 4, that when those surrounding nations hear of the statutes God has commanded, they too would worship God and say, how good is God that he would give to his people such statutes and decrees that are as righteous and good as this? Surely there is a God in Israel. So even the giving of the law was for the purpose of those pagan nations. And then you get to the New Testament in Romans chapter 5. Jesus is called the second Adam as the relational head of mankind. So Jesus becomes the true people of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, it says we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in him before the foundations of the world. Which means everything that I could possibly thirst for is already mine if I am in Christ Jesus and he is in God the Father. And I don't know about you guys, but I spend most of my time obsessing over what I don't have that I think I need to make myself happy. Most of my life is spent feeling like I'm not enough feeling either guilt or shame or some weird combination of both of those, and thinking that if only I had this, I would be happier. If only I had more discipline. If only I had more self-control. If only I had different relationships. If only I had more money. If only I had a different job. If only all these things that it's really hard to accept and believe that everything necessary for life and godliness is mine in Christ Jesus. All blessings 
in Christ Jesus are currently mine, so that God might pour those out on me and elicit a recognition of those gifts that would then make me want to turn around and share that with others because how could I appreciate and enjoy all those things I know I don't deserve without wanting to turn to my neighbor, to turn to my wife, to turn to my kids, to turn to those in my sphere of influence and to share that with them. That is part of what it means to be the people of God. And so that relationship leads to a greater identification with God's purposes. And that's what leads the theologian Chris Wright to say, mission is not ours, mission is God's. He says, missions does not exist for the church. The church exists for mission. And that's not just semantics. What Wright is saying is that mission isn't an activity given to keep God's people doing something. Because after all, idle hands and whatnot. Mission is God's, and because it's so central to his character, he created a church to be able to participate in doing two things, both declaring with their mouths and displaying with their lives the truth and reality of the coming kingdom. The church exists to participate with God in that mission but not as tools or servants, as adopted sons and daughters, which changes everything. Because now I'm not working to be accepted. I'm working because I am. I'm not working to gain approval. I've been told that I'm enough. I'm not living every day hustling to prove my sense of self-worth when it's already been given to me by the fact that I've been made in the image and likeness of a God who has already spoken a better word over me than sin. So I was sharing this at the first service, and this is the only rabbit trail, I promise, but it turned out to be a good rabbit. And I told my wife, I was like, I have 30 minutes, baby, no rabbit trails. You give me that look if I start doing it, but this is a good rabbit trail. So all this week, I struggled with this message. In any context, I could give this message without a problem at all. I've spent the last 20 years doing it. But I sat down, and every single time, it was like hitting a wall. And no matter how long I sat in front of my computer or stared at my Bible or pretended to pray while actually being distracted, I could not get anything that I was comfortable with. And then all the natural life eruptions emerge. We have three boys, and so it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. We had x-rays this week, and then we had to shift gears and all of, all, all of this. And then I had uh, the greatest joy of my week was yesterday when I had seven hours at a track meet to watch my son run five minutes. And so I had a wonderful time with the Lord of just sitting there at the track meet knowing I had nothing but time. So I brought my laptop thinking that this was going to be where the message was going to come together. And instead, I was rebuked by the Lord for trying to spend that much time crafting a message, not for your benefit, but for mine. The only reason I would have possibly wanted to spend that much time on a message I know that well is to ensure that you thought better of me, that I really knocked it out of the park, 
And I realized God prevented me this whole week from sitting down and studying, wrapping it up, closing. I know the feeling, closing the laptop like, done, got that. And the whole week I told my wife, I have nothing. Like, and then I told her yesterday on the drive down, I was like, honey, I think I may scrap everything and just speak from the heart. And she's like, no, don't, that's bad. I don't know what you're going to say, but whatever you do, don't do that. That's going to be bad. And she's right. That's why I married her. But it was a beautiful and a sweet reminder to me from my father that I'm already approved, that I'm already accepted, that I'm already loved, and I've already been those things independent of anything I ever have or will do for him. I am that welcomed and loved simply because of who he made me to be in all of my imperfections, in all of my distractedness, in all of my sinful lack of discipline. He delights in that relationship that he would choose to bless me for something greater. That's good news. That's really good news. Now, The last thing is his purpose, and this is where I want to give a caveat, because up to this point, I have not said anything um, off, or that should make you question. What I'm about to say might be new to you, which is why I'm not asking you to uncritically receive it, but to question me on this one, challenge this. I want to submit to you that salvation is not the point of the Bible. Individuals going to heaven when they die is not the goal of Scripture. The restoration of all things under the rule and reign of Jesus is. Now, if the Bible was written to get us saved, and the greatest blessing is to go to heaven when I die, then who's the Bible about? It's about me. And I can rightly pillage and plunder every single page and say, what's in it for me? What's God doing with Mike Brown? What's God's promises for me? What good things does God have for me today? Which is typically what we do. But if the Bible is actually about the restoration of all things back to the way God designed it to be before sin entered the world, that changes our basic orientation not only towards God and ourselves, but to those around us as well. Because now we're finding ourselves wrapped up in a much bigger story where we are no longer believing God's global purpose is fulfilled in my salvation because then we're ending up with a self-centered theology. We're ending up with a church culture that values conversion over discipleship. And all we're doing is counting numbers and hands raised and altar calls and not asking how many people have we brought to apprentice under Jesus as his students learning to live life after him and according to him. The purpose of discipleship is to see our souls oriented toward Jesus in a much different way. Salvation is the very beginning of that and I do not mean to diminish salvation whatsoever. But the point is, salvation is a necessary prerequisite to the restoration of all things. Meaning, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see God's ultimate goal being accomplished, where new heavens and new earth are being brought down. 
And it says in this new heavens and new earth, there's no longer any sun because God himself will be our light. So how can I, who spends most of my time trying to find loopholes out of obedience to God, hiding from him, actually find pleasure in an eternity where he sees all things? That means something has to happen to me to be the kind of person who would want to live there. We call that redemption or salvation where God changes me to become the kind of person who's fit to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. Paul tells Timothy the same thing, right? He says, bodily exercise profits some. So you're going to your gym, you got your work out of the day, go get at it, that's good, nothing wrong with that. But he says, godliness profits not just in this life, but also the life to come. So godliness is what trains us to become the kind of people that are comfortable inhabiting a place where God sees all things and we are naked without shame before our Father. Because all of those shameful things have already been dealt with and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And now I am free to engage, unveiled, Paul says, with open eyes before the Lord who sees all things. That's a good thing. But it changes everything now about the way we approach God, the way we approach our understanding of Christianity, and the way we approach what our purpose or meaning is in this world. Because if it's not just individual salvation or individual happiness, now we're thinking much bigger picture that God is restoring the entire planet back to the way it was supposed to be in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world. And the, re the restorative purpose of blessing is to be a sign and a witness of that coming kingdom and of that day when that actually happens. And so by this invitation into a relationship with God the Father, where he takes the wickedness and the brilliance that coexist in my life at the same time. Don't miss that. He takes all of the beauty that I'm capable of and the evil I'm capable of in the same breath and does something fundamental with that to change it. Taking the good and encourage it. Taking the bad and telling me to be careful about that. And then invites me to participate in being a picture of the kingdom come. Which means now, everywhere I look, when I see an area where God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven, that's an area God is inviting me to step into with his blessing. Anywhere God's will is not currently being done on earth as it is in heaven is an invitation for you and I to take something we have been blessed with and do something about it. So one of the reasons why I really loved being invited is I turned the church that I planted over at the end of 2018. For the last 11 years, my wife and I had been planting this church. We were the last ones to realize the church got planted. And now it was like a real, live, legit church that people considered their home. No one thought about it as a church plant. Only we did. And we had to come to grips with the fact that our time might be done. Because I really like starting things and planting things. I'm a terrible manager. 
And so we had to say goodbye to that church. And as we were turning that over, one of the things that God had been drawing our heart to was the foster care system in Los Angeles, which is the worst child dependency crisis in the nation. And I began to get more and more frustrated that I was spending all of my time training leaders to do the things I'd rather do myself. And like, I don't just want to teach well on Sundays. I want to get my hands dirty and step into that brokenness. I miss that. And so we were able to turn the church over to step into those broken places where the task is impossible to accomplish. I don't think we're going to change the child welfare system in Los Angeles. But as Mother Teresa said, just because something is impossible doesn't mean you shouldn't do it anyway. So maybe our goal isn't to change the child welfare system, but it is to step into brokenness. Having been restored to health, moderately so, the best any healthy disciple of Jesus gets the sight of heaven. Actually, no, that's not true. We're still jacked up. But we're not super dysfunctional. To be able to step into that level of dysfunction. And one of my greatest joys has been instead of preaching the gospel to people who sit there and just, I got this. I've heard this since I was in second grade. Oh, this is something new to you. I bet you think you're big. Oh. Instead, I get to look little children in the eye who have never had the love of a mother or father who was able to care for them or want them and tell them there's a father who wants nothing more than to bring you into his family. And I'll tell you who's receiving that message with good news, those children. Because it's almost too good to believe that there's a parent who won't use me or abuse me or hurt me. There's a parent who not only knows how to care for me but wants to. And now I'm not only clinging to this one sibling that hopefully I get to travel with, I have in Christ a whole community of people? Like, are you kidding me? That's for real? How good is that? So I'm happy to leave everybody over here with them. Okay, good, it's not for you. Hey, kids, which kind of sounds like Jesus saying, hey, by the way, all you religious people, it's not for you. Prostitutes and drunks are pushing their way into the kingdom while you're debating about the merits of the law. It's cool. You stay where you are. Let the little children come because for such is the kingdom of heaven. And all of you who are too important to let those children come, just stay where you are. It's fine. Jesus is like the worst PR person ever. Serious. Right? After these crazy miracles and crowds start following him, that's when he drops the, oh, by the way, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to follow me. (laughs) And from that day forward, many stopped following him. It's almost like he's intentionally reaching out to the people who are going to be able to receive it with open hands and open hearts and say, okay, (laughs) if that's what it means to be close to you, I'm in. And that's the invitation for all of us here. God's purposes are given to his people to invite them to participate in his purpose for all of humanity. Take stock this morning of what you consider those blessings to be. 
what those things are that you can definitively point to and say, this was given to me by God. We had one of our small groups do that once where we brought out the whiteboard and had everybody start shouting out blessings. And we started writing down, writing down. And the whiteboard just got super full, writing in the corners, the margins, the whole thing, right? Everybody had a good idea of what they were blessed with. And then we went through every single one and said, how are you using that blessing to be a blessing to others? In what way have you gratefully received that as a blessing from God and then asked, how do I steward this for his purposes, which is the flourishing of everyone around me? And as you begin to do that more and more, you begin to feel less and less like a worker and more and more like a son and daughter that's being invited into something much bigger than God's plan for your life, but has been invited into God's plan for the universe of which you are a part. And that's good news. Amen? Father, we give you thanks for that this morning. for the truth of your word, for the truth of that relationship, for your desire. When we are at our worst, when we are still sinners, dead and stuck and enjoying anything not you, you died for us. And even now, as those who ought to know better, but yet find ourselves returning to what we are familiar with. Your invitation still stands. You are better to us than we deserve. And I pray that you would allow us to cherish that truth this morning. For those that are here that have never engaged in that relationship, would you give them the faith to take a baby step towards you? to simply pray and acknowledge, despite our running, your pursuing hasn't stopped. For those of us that know you and have known you for years and so ought to know better but still find ourselves stuck, would you be gracious and merciful to help us take those same baby steps to realize you have never left? It's we who've walked away from you. And for those this morning that have never been more joyful in Christ than today, would you shower them with an abundance of that, encouraging them to steward it well, allowing all of us a glimpse of that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen.